Steve, uh, what is reality, man? <laughs> well, hey, we gotta, we gotta answer that question in order. We begin with our experiences. That is definitely a part of reality. And then we have theories, which we build to explain our experiences. So theory is, our reality is a mixture of our experiences and then our believed interpretations of those experiences. So you've been on this quest, I mean, <laughs> probably your whole life, but in a, in a more formalized way uh, since Patterson in Pursuit, you know, you sort of at least sharing your quest publicly to understand the nature of things, you know, and I know you've gone pretty deep down the mathematics rabbit hole, which we talked about last time. Um, and, you know, yeah, economics, political philosophy, but uh, today I, I really want to like the biggest question of all, like I really want to, I want to know not only what are your current thoughts on what is the nature of reality, um, but how, how that's sort of changed, what, what you've gone through in this pursuit, a lot of the people you've talked to, theories you've explored, how those have challenged and, and changed your view and what parts of your view you feel like are still in flux um, and what parts you feel pretty confident in. Dude, I mean, it, it's what a friend you are, right? Like, could you ask a better question to somebody interested in philosophy? Like, come on, like, <laughs> we'll just go right to the difficult one. Okay, well, um, so I think reality is unbelievably complex. <clears throat> we can speak with certainty when we're talking about the nature of our experiences. So I can say, I've got some of my orange juice here. I can say what exists in the world where it is at least true that there are experiences of color that exist in the world. That is the contents of my consciousness certainly exist. And if I'm careful in labeling them a correct way, I can come up with sentences that are certainly true and their negations are certainly false. And that's fine. And that actually, to, to be aware of the contents of your experiences is to make a lot of progress in philosophy because what happens is people confuse the nature of their experiences for the explanation of their experiences. So if I say, this, this is a very separate proposition from saying that I am experiencing colors in my visual field. If I say, um, there is a bottle of orange juice here that I'm holding. This is a very different proposition. This is not, I'm not directly experiencing the bottle of orange juice. I'm experiencing color blobs in my visual field that I'm interpreting as coming from an object outside of my experiences. And that's fine to do. That is, that is the way that we build theories about what the world is and how it works. But we immediately have to go to a lower level of epistemological confidence. Like, could it be, for example, that I am dreaming? If it's the case that I am dreaming, then I'm still having the experience the way that it is. I'm still having the experience of the color blob. But if, when I say I'm experiencing this because there is a bottle of orange juice that exists out there in the world, well, that's actually not right if I'm in, the, in a dream or if I'm hallucinating or plugged in the matrix or whatever. So uh, when you have that differentiation, uh, it, it, you you avoid the mistake of thinking the immediate interpretation of my experiences is, is the interpretation that's true. So if that's the case, if what I've said is correct, then philosophy is very hard because it implies that there is sort of a large gap between the immediacy of our experiences and our explanations for them. The everyday, the, the physical world that we think we inhabit is still ultimately an explanation of our experiences. It's not something we're directly connected to. Um, 
Okay. So I guess like that's part one. What was the original question anyway? No, no, we forget about the original question. Okay. I'm just going to keep rolling. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I, okay. I almost feel like I'm hearing three potential things here that there's experience, uh, your own experience, which you can place the highest degree of confidence in. In fact, might you say that um, you just, you can't escape that part. That's a certainty that, you know, sort of you exist or you have the experience of feeling as if you exist. So I think we have to use language carefully here because when you say you exist, it's like, well, okay, well, what exactly? You probably know there's a self. What exactly is the self? I think what you can say is um, there is experience taking place, or you could say perceptions exist, perceptions are happening. Um, I like to think of it as the contents of my perception certainly exist. So the, the color blob in my visual field is definitely some part of reality. It might not be that it corresponds to, to a mind independent reality in, in the way that I think it does, but the actual sensory experience itself is definitely something that, that certainly exists. And then the, cool, the crazy part is too, one little thing here, is you can make a connection with logic. You can actually learn about the universality of logic just by observing your experiences. Like for example, uh, I can say of my experiences, they are exactly the way that they are and they are not the way that they are not. And it couldn't be that my experiences were some way that they were not. So immediately, well, why is that the case? Well, this is what we call the laws of logic, the law of identity, things are the way they are, and the law of non-contradiction, things are not the way that they are not. You can, you can have kind of an immediate pseudo experience of that just by thinking about the nature of your experiences. It, it gets religious pretty quick. I mean, you're describing uh, the logos or uh, what you're saying, experience is, it sounds very much like, you know, I am what am. Uh, I know. Yeah. The I part, the am, I understand the I part's a little bit harder. Yeah, that's, that's fair. So, okay. So the, I'm trying to see if there's three things here. If you're, if you're, maybe this isn't even the accurate word, but uh, I don't, I don't want to get into philosophical grounds saying you're a dualist, if that's not what you mean, but a dualist or a tri three, threeist, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but experience is, and then objects, uh, which form part of that experience, uh, appear to be, and we can debate with what level of certainty we can say that the orange juice actually exists. So there's the experience, the objects, but then is there a third thing? Is there the the act of describing the object is the is language itself just consumed subsumed under experience or describing experience is that something a third thing so this is this question and, and comes that, from and does the, that have a generative power to bring in to to out of experience language can create new ideas concepts is that the creative process are there are there three things here that are separate or do they subsume one another so you're asking this question because you listened to the Chris Langan interview, I infer. Yeah, well, I ended up at that interview because <laughs> I was going down the rabbit hole of language as a, the idea of language as the foundational structure of reality. Language in a very broad sense. Right. I think and he's I, and wrong. I don't remember how I got, come, came across this. And I was reading different things, Googling things, and I came across Chris Langan. And then I was like, this guy's kind of weird. I'm going to check him out. And I started Googling him. And I'm like, Steve has interviewed him. And I didn't yeah, even yeah. know this. So anyway. Yeah, yeah. The, the literal 200 IQ guy. He's an interesting yeah. character. Um, I think he's wrong. Yeah, I, I do not think that language, I mean, unless you take an outrageously broad definition for what language is, and even then, um, I, I don't think that it is something that's the same type of fundamentalness. There's a question in there, kind of the, the uh, um, 
which I think uh, deflates his position, which is to say, so let's interpret, let's bring it back to the orange juice. This is reinterpreting our conversation I had with uh, Chris. Are you saying that the actual experience of the color itself is a word? Like like the, the color blob in my visual field is language? Beg pardon? No, that's not right. That's definitely not right. It is not it is not language the, the 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 color that is spatially extended in a visual field is not language. It's not a description. And it, it would be a conflation of the description of the thing with the thing to say, how, well, it is how a- would you know? How would you know? So perhaps there are things in your visual field that are coming in all the time but you don't, you don't experience them because you don't have a word for them, more or less. And, and so, so, so th- people have theorized that this is actually the case with, I have no idea if this is true, but I've heard this claim that when the ships came to uh, you know, the Americas, the indigenous peoples literally didn't see them because yeah. they didn't have a concept for them. And so they were blind to them. Or I've heard that so, like the color blue didn't exist until a certain time in history when people had a, a word for it. How would you know if that wasn't the case? So I have direct experience. I have direct knowledge of the fact. I have direct access to my visual experiences. So it is, it is very likely that m- most of the time I am experiencing something and there is, a, there is a misidentification of what I'm experiencing. One of my favorite examples is um, you hear a loud bang in the middle of the night. What is it? Now we have to differentiate. Well, there is the experience, there is the loud bang, but are you really hearing a loud bang? What exactly is a loud bang? Well, a loud bang is just a word that we're using to describe the phenomena that we're experiencing. It's not a loud bang out there in the world. Like maybe it, maybe what you heard was the car backfiring. Maybe you heard fireworks. Maybe you heard a gunshot. Well, maybe, maybe actually what I actually heard was, I can't even tell you what I heard because what I heard was a sense, an auditory sensory experience. When I'm, when I'm talking about it, I'm putting labels on it that try to correspond to concepts and in my interpretation of the experience. But the experience itself is not something that's linguistic. This is why but I say it. But yeah. what if, if I didn't have a concept for a loud noise, um, maybe I wouldn't hear it at all. And maybe that's happening around me all the time. There are I, things that I would experience if only I had a concept for them. And once I have been given that word or concept, now I begin to experience that thing. That's sort of true, but that's sort of false as well. So, so like if you, if you walk out in the world and uh, you have a belief that you're going to have a particular type of experiences. Like for example, if you go out and you're in a crowd and you have the belief that you know, uh, people are, looking, are going to look at you funny or they don't like you, you're going, to exp- you're going to be having experiences you wouldn't otherwise have. Like you're going to be, your, your gaze is going to last a little bit longer at the person and then the person's gonna look at you because you're looking at them and you're gonna be like, oh no, the person doesn't like me. So it's like the concept sort of brings about that experience. That's true, but that doesn't imply that, uh, that like, for example, to go back to the ship analogy or like the ship example with the Native American people, to say it's very plausible that they didn't have a word. They didn't have a way to contextualize the experience. But that's very different from saying they didn't or couldn't have had the experience. And even if we even if we take that line, then it's a different proposition to say the experience is language and the experience is preceded by having a concept 
to interpret a potential experience. So if I say like, well, they couldn't have experienced the sensory, the, the colors of the boat moving uh, off the land, that's one thing. But to say the, the actual ontological nature of the experience is language, that's a different thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so would you say, so I, I completely get where you're coming from there. Do you think that language is something other than experience or external objects? Is it a third category? So I think language is mental. I think that I am a, I'm a metaphysical pluralist. So I think there are physical objects. I think there are mental objects. And then I think there are abstract objects. Unfortunately, I think there are abstract objects. Um, and I would put information in that category. Um, but language, I think, is mental. That's unfortunate. Uh, a later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think that language is mental. So I think what's going on is um, you're, there, there are uh, experiences that are populating your consciousness. You're having all kinds of different experiences. And you develop concepts about those experiences. Those concepts are oftentimes not, oftentimes not able to be articulated. They're not put into language. Sometimes some people find a way to package the, the, the language with the concept. So the language is a way to try to elicit the concept in the mind of the other person. So like if I, if I weren't showing you the orange juice, if I were just talking about the bottle of orange juice, I'm using language to elicit, I'm trying to elicit the same concept in your mind that's in my mind when I'm thinking about orange juice. So I think it's just, I just think it's a mental thing. What, it, what do you think? So, um, so we've established that there are, uh, in, in your worldview, there are multiple types of things, uh, mental uh, objects, whatever you want to call them, physical objects. Yeah. Or anything external to experience. How, how do you, what, it, what is your level of confidence in the objective reality of those things? Yeah, <laughs> this is the best conversation ever. <laughs> uh, okay, so we gotta be really careful here, all right. So uh, I'll start with an error in reasoning. So one of my favorite interviews that I've done, a pair of interviews with the, was, was with Dr. Bernardo Castrop, who is an idealist mm -hmm. and a high level thinker I think he's wrong, but high level thinker. We had a very high level conversation, but I see an error in his reasoning. And the error is this. He thinks that when you are identifying what is an abstraction, what he would call an abstraction. So the, the, the world outside of your immediate experiences, he would call an abstraction. He sort of shuts down where it's like, okay, we cannot talk about our abstractions. That's an abstraction. You're talking about the physical world. Well, actually that's just an abstraction. So there's no reason to believe that your abstractions have ontological weight to them because you don't directly experience them. So he throws it out and says, everything is mental because that's all we directly experience. I think that's a mistake. I think it is critically important to identify what is an abstraction to use his language and what is not an abstraction. But just because you found an abstraction, something that is the, the, like, like the, the physical world outside of my experience is an abstraction. Doesn't mean I have to throw out the belief in the existence of the physical world. The reason that I think it's a, it's a good theory I can't easily get rid of is because it explains my experiences really, 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 really well. Especially like with the physical world, the idea of a, of a three-dimensional field that is independent of my mind is unbelievably explanatory for uh, 
understanding why my experiences happen the way they are. Like when I close my eyes and then I reopen them, things appear uh, to be in the same position uh, as they were when my eyes were closed. When I move my hand like out there and I feel something, the feeling, the tactile sensation in my hand corresponds to the, um, the, the sight of like, I'm touching the laptop right now. And I, it looks like I'm touching the laptop when I'm, when I'm in the car and I hear things go by and I have auditory experiences and, and they change as my visual field is changing and the tactile sensation of the wind on my arm is changing. All of that makes sense, perfect sense in the context of there existing an actual three-dimensional physical world in which the, the, the state of the physical world corresponds to the experiences that I'm having. Do you think that model that this independently existing physical world uh, is there, the fact that it, it has such explanatory power and it, it's frankly very useful uh, and it keeps you from going insane in some ways, um, could that be analogized to maybe astronomical models that have great explanatory power for all the things we observe in the normal day to day, yeah. but once super powered telescopes or yeah, yeah. microscopes are invented, we see that on a very, very small or very, very large level, those models no longer hold. And so it's like, well, it works so far as we need it, but it, it by itself can't explain the fullness of, of reality. Well, so there are a couple of things in there. First of all, I don't think reductive physicalism works to explain the totality of reality. So because I'm a pluralist, I get to say the existence of the, the mind independent physical world explains lots of things, but not the whole thing. Um, also, it is entirely possible that what you've described is true, that we'll wake up one day with future technology. And so actually there isn't a physical world. It's all in the mind in this way. And Langan kind of has an interesting approach to this where he essentially says like, there is the mind independent world out there, but it's all mental. So he, he, he calls it the mind at large. So it's like, you could also call it the mind of God. Well, if you um, removed... If you remove the element of time, that's true in a very simple way. Like, look, everything you see around me, this table, that thing, all of these were the products of a, of a mind. Someone imagined them and their mental processes. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking. Them, right? And so yeah. if you remove time, everything that I'm physically experiencing here, now you could argue <laughs> what about like the dirt and the rocks and the sky? Possibly you lead to some theological argument that if you go back far enough, some mind generated that as well. But I, I think it's a, I think it's a very, like, if we're just looking at my experience today, I very much love the, yeah, there's an independently existing reality. This microphone is real, but there is a way if you're kind of clever, that's like, yeah, but who created that microphone? A mind. I like that's a, that's a very entrepreneurial way of thinking about <laughs> metaphysics. Uh, but it, even then, you could say, I think one of the problems with that is the the microphone is still built out of particles. Well, it's an infinite regress. And, and then I guess you could just fall back and say, well, it all came out of the mind of God at one point. Yeah. So so Kastrup's idea here is worth is worth talking about for a minute, because I think it's beautiful. And like in one in the one of the interviews, I said his his version of physical reality or mind, personal consciousness, independent reality is way prettier than mine, literally, because he thinks like, when, so, so I'm observing a tree that's out here and I'm having a certain type of um, a green visual experience. And in my philosophy, I'm like, okay, there are spatially extended units that are composed in a particular way such that 
when I stand in particular relation to that physical object, I get the sensory experience of green, but the tree isn't itself green. Well, in his idea, the tree is actually green. There's actually sort of an, an existing sensory full thing it, out it there is, in the world. It is the expression of that part of infinite consciousness, which calls itself green or something to that. Effect. And it is green out there. Like the, the, the mind in the mind of God, because the mind of God is sort of physical existing permanent physical reality, physical reality out there. It is actually green. The world out there is green. And it's like, wow, that's that you have a prettier world than I do. <laughs> so, so, this pluralism uh, idea, I, I yeah. want to, I want to get you to, cause I've, I've actually never gone very oh, far. Before, before we talking about pluralism, I do want to just tie up one, oh, yeah. one thing about this. Cause you asked me about like, could it be we, that this is a, akin to an astronomical theory that turns out to be obsolete. I would say it is totally possible. However, it is unbelievably fundamental, way more fundamental than the particular astronomical um, arrangements, like when we're trying to, you know, navigate across the, the ocean, we look up at the stars, we have a certain model of the way things are arranged there, and it helps us navigate across the ocean. But it turns out as we gain for better technology, we find our models were wrong. But even then, even in that example, the, the model that replaced the previous model is all in the context of there is an independent physical space out there that is simply arranged differently than we thought it was. So to, 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 have, to have a rearrangement such that there isn't a physical world would just be a, an, a gigantic revision to well, things. So sometimes what I wonder is that this idea of maps or models um, of varying degrees of accuracy, the accuracy, at least in our experience, uh, is always based on the scale. Right. So like if you're looking at even just a geographical map, um, if you're looking at a map of the United States, the level of accuracy is pretty low if you're talking about navigating the city street. Right. Because it's not for that purpose. And, and so right. and this idea of an externally the, the mental model of an externally independently existing three dimensional physical world. It's not so much the scale as in size or level of zoom. Maybe it's uh, the time scale that makes that more or less accurate. Like I was saying before, if you have a, a time scale of approaching infinity or whatever, um, oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say approaching infinity. Yeah, that's, that, that's, a, that's problematic language. I a, re a really <laughs> long time scale. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's fair, that's fair, you got me. Um, maybe the, 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 given the span of a human life, um, that map is not only accurate, but like maybe, maybe crucial. Even the people who claim to not believe it, they operate as if they do, because otherwise you'll go insane. Right. Um, and, and, and resolution is a really interesting point here when you're talking about the mind independent physical world. So it helps. It's a, it's an awfully logical way of thinking about things to then conceive of the physical world as being composed of fundamental units of fundamental amount of units where you don't have infinite divisibility. So in my mind, the way I'm conceiving of the physical world, there is actual absolute precision. Like, like there, there, there are some ways of thinking about space and spatial extension in which there isn't really fundamental precision, certainly not precision that could be known because everything's infinitely divisible. So you just increase the resolution and then it's like you have the, uh, the nested inf infinities like inside fractal, of each other. Uh, it's a fractal, fractal idea. Yeah. Exactly. And but that's problematic. I think that's problematic for logical reasons, but and the way I'm conceiving of things, 
there it's the Minecraft world. There are fundamental blocks in a particular state in some absolute position in, in space that we're nowhere near having access to the, the base unit level of reality with current technology. It's like 10 to the negative 40th of and, and the size of an your, atom. And this is your, your um, theory of geometry. Your resolution to Zeno's paradox right. is that there is a point, uh, a geometric point that you can, that's irreducible. Exactly. Exactly. There's a point that is itself spatially extended and composes all other composite objects. Okay. Okay. Which by the way, um, I love that because it doesn't make my brain hurt. You know what I mean? Like I don't have to accept contradictions. Um, right. you believe that. <laughs> That's it, the strength it, of the theory. <laughs> it, you know, it may be, it may be unsatisfactory in other ways, but any Alter, like it may not fully satisfy me, but all alternative theories not only don't fully satisfy me, but they additionally require me to hold two concepts that don't uh, that contradict each other at the same time. Which exactly, like nobody wants to, nobody goes into it wanting to be a geometric atomist, and, and the reason is because there are lots of sloppy and counterintuitive things that come from it. It's just when you're like, for example, rotation. Like this is the the great example. You have this object. When we think of rotation, we're usually thinking of like Euclidean rotation, where the properties of the object are preserved, it's just rotated in space. Well, if space is discrete and there are base units, rotation breaks the edges of the object. It's like when you rotate a line on your computer screen, it breaks, it actually breaks the line. It doesn't look that way for when you're zoomed out, but when you're zoomed in, it actually breaks the properties of the object. And it's like, what the hell is going on there? That's very counterintuitive. But when you're weighing counterintuitive versus logically contradictory, I'm, I'm on the side of counterintuitive. I mean, I grew up playing Legos, so maybe that's why I'm so attracted yeah. to pixelated building block universe. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so, so pluralism. So I've, I've, never been, I've never been satisfied with the, um, I guess it's called idealist. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not very tight on my precise philosophical terms, so just allow me some leeway if I say things incorrectly. But the idealism, the, the idea that um, basically all is mind, all is consciousness, and um, that, that's it. It feels unsatisfactory uh, just on a very common sense level that like, yeah, but what does that even mean? How do I even operate in the world in that way? And the three-dimensional space objectively existing or independently existing feels very natural, intuitive. And plus, like, you kind of have to assume that to build a lot of cool shit. Um, I don't know, what would I just like sit down in a, in a sandbox and stare at the sand and hope that it manifests a castle? Like, I don't know how to operate in that world. However, the materialist explanation, which I will categorize crudely as... Um, biological robots in a meaningless universe uh, is, is so in, insufficient as well. Like it is fine as far as dealing with three-dimensional objects to believe that about them, yeah, but right. it's horrible in terms of dealing with your own human experience. It explains nothing about yourself and consciousness <laughs> and meaning and purpose and suffering and pain. And yeah. all the, I've, there's just too many things that I've experienced to know that consciousness is, it's, it just can't be a biological process that's just mechanical uh, and meaningless. It leaves so many questions unanswered. So I get irritated at both of those. Um, I want you to resolve this for me with your- Okay, yeah. Uh, well, so before I do, um, so I agree with the 
unsatisfactoriness of idealism. <clears throat> I don't think it's good enough. I don't think it's strong enough. It's attractive to me though. It, it, and, and what it has going for it is that it's possible. It is, it, 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 I think it is conceivably possible it, that it's also kind the of universe- and romantic. For uh, sure, for sure. And, 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 and you know, religious or awe-inspiring and this is what people, yeah. when they're tripping on mushrooms they all become idealists right yes and, and i that's uh well and the other the other thing is i think part of the reason people become idealist in those circumstances is they for the first time realize that they are not escaping their experiences like most people are operating in the mindset that there is a physical object out there and it has no relation to me i'm not constructing that object and then i guess they're on the psychedelic experience and they go holy shit all that's happening is my mind is constructing an experience. This thing that I am directly experiencing is my own experience. But like their mind blows and then they go, okay, all there is is, is experience. Or, or even just the experience of something that can't be explained in three-dimensional normal space. Yeah, yeah. Once yeah. you've had one of those, then you're like, materialism doesn't cut it. I need something more. Right. And, well, and so, so I want to know how to not reject the parts of the materialism that maybe are right. valuable. Well, um, yeah. Well, so what I want to say, so idealism, at least plausible. Physicalism is not plausible. Physicalism is certainly false. And I, you can say very few things in philosophy and metaphysics that are certainly true or certainly false. Physicalism, uh, reductive physicalism is certainly false. That is to say, it's not simply, it doesn't have a good explanation for meaning and experiences. It's that there is no ontological room for experiences because it's the case that consciousness is not itself spatially extended. It, consciousness is not a physical phenomena. I'm gonna put so, a bookmark in a question for us not to forget. I, okay. wanna, I wanna ask you whether the propagation of physicalism as the dominant ideology is an intentional effort to do something uh, to, or it's just uh, something that emerged accidentally as a yeah yeah we yeah we'll have definitely have to talk is there about a conspiracy that. to push yeah. in other words yeah yeah um, okay so so I think oh, this is man this is just great so I think best if we're speaking honestly, we have to say, we have to start with dualism. We have to say, okay, well, there's definitely mental experiences. Like consciousness is a fundamental thing we can be certain of. We can imagine that there's an evil demon that is giving us a bunch of hallucinations. Those hallucinations don't correspond to any physical reality. It's all mental. Idealism is a possibility, right? But physical world is a really good theory to explain our experiences. So maybe there's mind and there's matter and there's two fundamental separate things. By, by the way, I always love it when people try to escape with the matrix analogy and it's like, yeah, but in the matrix, they're still in a physical reality. That's just plugged into a <laughs> feeding them a, another version. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. There's the, well, yes, that's a, that's actually a really interesting idea because then you have to say, well, what is a physical reality? Like there, there is spatial extension in that situation, but the spatial extension is maybe you want to say it's virtual. Um, but any, anyway, that's, well, a, that's anyway, a, I a, just meant like yeah. once they're unplugged, it's yeah. like, Oh, when they were in the matrix, it was all an illusion, but reality itself is still. Physical, right. Oh, right. right. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so. Uh, I, I got right. you. On dualism, that. dualism. Okay. Um, so we, I think dualism, if you're just being honest, is really attractive. And I'm, there's a lot of philosophers as well who are more of the uh, more of the scientific persuasion who have also admitted, like, yeah, you got to sort of 
be a dualist. A dualist or an idealist. I remember reading something by Bertrand Russell, who I don't have that much respect for. Um, he got some things right. He got a lot of things wrong. But even he, even Bertrand Russell, the, the man on the, the top of the scientific, intellectual, mathematical pyramid, was, uh, was effectively a dualist. It's like, you can't pretend like consciousness is some physical thing. It's not. Um, and yet you don't want to throw out the existence of the physical world. The problem, the historical problem has been, well, okay, if there's mind and there's matter, how doth these two things interact? Like if you have something that is completely, if you're talking about, well, there's a world of pure spatial extension and it's separate from the world of, of ideas and feelings, you're also saying probably these two things interrelate. There's some, there's some when, when the brain is composed a certain way, it elicits a certain conscious experience. There seems to be causality and relations between them. And how could that be in the, if they're in radically different ontological categories? And that's a rather puzzling, difficult thing. Uh, I think I solved this. I think I solved this a few years ago. No big deal. Yeah, no biggie. Um, and I'll tell you why I solved it, because it's an interesting story. So <clears throat> I was sitting in the bathtub in South Carolina. And like Archimedes. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. A regular Archimedes. And this was sort of a eureka moment. I've had a, a few of these. One of them was resolving Zeno's paradoxes years and years ago. But like, oh, like, it must be the case that space is discrete. And that was sort of a eureka thing as well. That was early on, though. I wasn't even, that was when I was, I think, still in school or just, just outside of school. Anyway, so I'm sitting in the bathtub and I'm thinking about the discreteness of time, totally unrelated for, to metaphysics. And I thought, okay, time is also kind of weird because it seems like there are instants of time, but are the instants of time themselves chronologically extended or are they like, is there like a, there's like a frame rate to the universe where what appears to be the progression of time is like a progression of non-chronologically extended instants or it, 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 it's very confusing. It, it's sort of like space that there's some paradoxes you walk into if you're not careful. So it, it seemed to me pretty clear that the, what, what time, the way to understand time is that it is the, the, the frame rate picture of the universe. There are, there are non-chronologically extended instants. There are, there are states of the universe as a system, which are static, if you will. And yet what chronological progression is, is simply the fact that these are side by side, if you will. Uh, um, it's okay, so essentially- it's, it's like flipping through the, the, the old style exactly. animation. Exactly. And if that's the case- it's all discrete. You know, time also has a discrete unit. There is a frame rate to the universe. And we actually sort of can have, there's a lot of in, uh, empirical reasons to believe this. Like it is definitely the case that our experiences at least come in a discrete frame rate. And how do we know? Because photographs could almost prove this. The fact that you're capable of taking a photograph. Uh, yeah, that's an like, interesting way of thinking it about it. Yeah. That, like what you just photographed is something. It's, it's people it existing is a state. completely frozen. Yeah. Right. And um, like with video, if you, if, you, if you, I used to do video production, if you, you can bump up your frame rate or if you're doing high speed photography right, or videography, you bump up the frame rate, you put a little secret message. And when you're in 10,000 frames per second, one of those frames is, is some is a pornographic image, but you play it back at the normal frame rate, you won't see it. So that is kind of an empirical demonstration that, well, it must be the case that our experiences have a discrete frame rate. And if that's the case, I see there's no reason to say that the universe doesn't have a discrete frame rate. Ooh, I like that analogy because that means all kinds of things can exist at a frame rate that we can't perceive that are snuck yeah. in those little in those we, little stills that are subliminally uh, impacting us like when we're watching, uh, you know, videos. 
Sure. There's the subliminal aspect, but also like it is the case. That's how the world works. The world works at this ridiculous resolution. We can't see. There's all kinds of you know quantum phenomena. Not, I don't mean woo-woo phenomena. I mean really microscopic scale physical phenomena that are, ha- that are happening unbelievably fast that we couldn't see with our regular experience. We need complex machinery just to even underst- try to understand what the hell is going on at that, at that level. So anyway, I was thinking about that. And then I thought it was, was the thinking about the frame rate picture of the universe. And I thought it just popped in my head. The whole thing just went, oh my gosh, this is an answer to the mind-body problem and the interaction problem. Because in this, in this situation where you have the frame rate of the universe, you can get effective two-way causality between mental and um, physical, and there's not actually a problem here. It, 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 I don't know if I could explain the connection where how it came from the thinking about discreteness, but here's the theory. <clears throat> the theory is that, uh, I wish I could draw, but I, I don't think it would work on this situation. So, so imagine that you have um, a physical object, right? We'll just stick with the, the OJ. Um, the, I think you can reduce physical objects completely down to units of spatial extension in a particular state. So let's call it the Minecraft world. That's the world that sometimes you can think of it. It's called digital physics. or I like to say geometric atomisms, atomism. There's a bunch of different ways to think about it, but let the Minecraft world. Now imagine that the universe was essentially outputting mental states from uh, physical states. That is to say, the, the mental state is in a completely different system. There is no mental state inside of the physical state, but the mental state is an output of the, the facts that the physical state is a particular way. So, so I, this is where I kind of interject information. I say, so imagine we had like a universal function that was outputting the states of the universe. Let's call it God, whatever. There is like one formula which is outputting states of the universe. So the inputs going into that formula, I'm saying could be the physical state. So so information about the physical state of the system. So you have a particular pattern. That particular pattern is translated into information. The information about that physical pattern gets put into the algorithm. And because that particular information was inputted, the output is mental state. Now, if that, I call it indirect interaction. So it's not the case, like when you're talking about the brain now, it's not the case that consciousness is within the brain. Like nobody, it's, it's not secreted by the brain. Consciousness in this theory would be the output of the, the information about the physical brain state. That is to say the geometry up here is sufficient such that the algorithm outputs my conscious mental state. Now, does the... Does the conscious mental state have the ability to then be an input? Into Why not? State? Okay. Why not? Right. This is this is the mind blowing thing. You get two way causality. So if we're talking about information, we get to say, well, it could be the information in the physical state only outputs the mental state. That's epiphenomenalism. It's just one-way causality from physical to mental. But there's no reason why the physical state couldn't be outputted by an input of the mental state. Well, what's so in what's so commonsensical about this or intuitively satisfying is if, if I just restrict it to my own experience of my physical health and mental health, uh, I know this to be true. So I know that I have gone through some, some crazy experiences with my thyroid where I, I had like a crazy hyperthyroidism. 
my mental state was dramatically, I would say my personality was altered. That has never happened to me before ever. And I was like, (laughs) just like kind of paranoid. My mind is racing, fragmented all the time. Like I was real edgy, like it was really weird. And I noticed once I got the thyroid under control that stopped. And so clearly the physical state impacting the the mental state, but it obviously goes in reverse too, because if I am exhausted, let's say physically tired, and I'm like, I can't do anything. I can't work. I got to just go to sleep. And then, uh, you know, I remember that I left the stove on. I get a surge of adrenaline because of, a, because of an idea that alters my physical state, right? So clearly this can go both ways. I mean, you can will yeah. yourself to overcome physical pain in certain situations and your adrenaline spikes and you alter your physical conditions, uh, but vice versa. So like, that seems like, it just ought to be that way based on my own experience. Yes. And, and the, one of the beautiful and flexible parts of this theory is that it offers both two-way causality and one-way causality. So if you want to be an mm. epiphenomenalist and say, what is fundamental is the physical state. Okay. So we've just, I've simply given a plausible mechanism by which the physical state effectively causes the mental state. But again, it's not, a, it's not a mechanism in the physical system that is generating the mental state. It is the fact of this, the units of matter being in a particular state in relation to one another that is rendering out the mental state. Great, epiphenomenalism. If you want to be an ideal, well, not even, I don't, uh, if you want to be a mystic, let's say, because we're still saying there's a physical state and say the, the, the physical world is caused entirely by mental states, you can do that too. You could say, well, what determines, uh, you know, there's one way causality from mental to physical. You could do that. It's, it's interesting because it explains two different types of people and their views on their position in the world. And you could say they're both correct. And, and, and yeah. I've been both at various times, right? There's kind of the classic, um, the victim who says, look, I can't help the way that I was born right. into this family with this yeah. particular mental or physical makeup and this and that. And what I am and my success and failure in life, my depression, my health. It's genetic, it's physical, it's a result of, I'm just receiving inputs from the outside world and they are not incorrect. Neither is the person who says, no, that's bullshit. You create all that. You have the ability to put your, to send inputs into the world as outputs and to change the world. And like, you can live in either condition. They're both, they're both fine. You don't, it doesn't have to be a loop. You can just passively receive external uh, inputs and that will determine your, your experience or vice versa. Yes. And it's also free will agnostic. So, so there's one, you could, you could say that uh, we can tell the story of the world in which the mind is the mental inputs are determining physical outputs, but the mental inputs are causally determined by previous mental inputs or something. You'd be, that'd be a weird philosophy, but you can imagine it. Yeah. You could, there's also room here for free will because we can say uh, uh, the mental states that are used, that are inputted into the universal function, the mental states themselves are volitionally determined. You don't even have to say that this is a fully deterministic system. You could just say, well, there, there are some like uh, I think the example I give in the article is maybe drinking orange juice or something. You could say that whether or not I drink orange juice is not a matter of just the the previous uh, physical or mental states. A necessary part of whether or not the the future output state of the universe is me drinking orange juice is that the that there's one mental input which is volitionally determined. That is my decision to do it. And if I don't have that decision, that little bit I can switch on or off. If I don't have it, then I don't drink the thing. So effectively, there you go. You get free will in this as well, if you Steve, want it. But I love this because uh, the free will thing is, is like way back in my earliest 
interest in philosophy was mostly around the idea of free will. And I was always unsatisfied with idealism is, you know, basically everything's conscious of you essentially have no, if everything's possible, there's no hard uh, causal um, relationships. There's no laws. If I do this, this must result. Well, it could also be this and this and this. And so you have essentially, if there's no bounded causal relationships, then you can't have free will because anything I choose might result in any outcome. And I, I might as well not choose anything because there's no, and vice versa, the strict materialism is like, well, you're not really choosing. You're just the product of previous choices being made. It right. just feels like you're choosing. And I always felt like you needed a concept of, of fate or a bounded reality in order to have free will. Um, because again, you need causal relationships that are independent of yourself in order to be a free chooser. Um, but you are a free chooser. And I never, I never found a, uh, a metaphysic that resolved those, uh, until today, Steve. Well, that's awesome. And I don't actually have an answer for the question of free will. I'm super confused by it. I don't know. I, I, I waffle by the week, but I just choose to believe it because it makes my life better. You choose to believe it. Ah, well, you've packaged an assumption in there. But for me, this is part of the reason why, in my opinion, um, a sign of a very good theory is that it is flexible. Mm -hmm. And this theory is sufficiently explanatory and flexible that makes me go, damn, this is a good theory. You can have two-way causality, two-way interactive causality, one-way causality. You can have the mental and the physical, which is, of course, I think everybody is sort of default a dualist and then they confuse themselves and get put into positions they don't actually believe. And you get potential free will. Holy shit, this is all the signs of something that is actually a a reasonable resolution to the the mind-body problem. Yeah, the, the, the more things the more things a theory can be agnostic on, right? Yeah. The stronger it is like, Hey, here's this one main claim and this needs to be true for this theory to work, but it doesn't need anything else to be true. It can, you know, it can, can work with a lot of different. So, okay. Let's play around with this a little bit. Okay. I really like and I like the, I like the frame rate analogy as well of like, you have these physical states, but you are experiencing them indirectly through something that is essentially projecting them to you at a particular frame rate. And of course you can project back as well. I like that idea because I think it, it, so let's take the psychedelic experience. Could that be something like a, just an alteration of the frame rate of reality? You're slowing down the frame rate at which you're receiving uh, transmissions or something to that effect. We're like, the fundamental reality isn't different, but you are seeing it at a different frame rate. And you're seeing some of those things that normally can't get experienced. Okay. You're, you're going to like this, Isaac. Okay. So yes, everything you've said is true, but you, you, like to, you like to have a big space for the unknown and the beyond. Okay. So get this concept. This is fucking mind blowing. Okay. <clears throat> so I could tell a story in which the progression of the physical universe, that is the combinations of, of atoms changing position and arranging themselves differently results in different conscious outputs. So like the brain, for you could tell the evolutionary story. You could tell a story of the universe, although it's not necessary. You could tell the story of the universe in which there was not conscious experience prior to the evolutionary construction of brains that were in a specific geometric structures such that they could output those mental experiences for the first time. Tell that story, no problem. But get this. So we established the principle. It could be the case that arrangements of matter bring into existence 
uh, objects in different ontological categories. You could imagine there was no mental experience prior to that geometric construction the first time. Okay, we've established the principle. What that means is we might be living in a universe in which there are literally new ontological categories that have yet to be rendered out by the universe because those geometric constructions have yet to come to be. So as different as the physical is from the mental, there might be the something, the some entirely new ontological category that has yet to come into existence because there hasn't been the correct information going into the, the universal function. So this is basically Julie and Jane's theory in the breakdown, uh, in the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Have you read that book? No, but I know you reference it a lot. It sounds good. I, I'm aware of a lot of the ideas. I haven't it's read very it yet, wild. It's very wild and it's very interesting. Um, but, but it's essentially that, that consciousness, at least as we define it, I, I don't know that I agree with his definition of consciousness, but that it's actually a relatively recent phenomenon. And that because the brain had a different structure, people experienced their own thoughts as literal visual and auditory hallucinations that they called the voices of the gods. And he reinterprets all these old myths and stories as like, no, we think this is metaphor. They were literally hearing auditory sounds that was just the other hemisphere of their brain because the two hemispheres um, you know, weren't, weren't uh, integrated in the way that they are now. And they experienced it as a god telling them what to do. And they, and they like, and I think it's, and until the brain evolved in such a way, that was the experience of we, we, what we have now. We're just having it in a different way. It's all happening internally. And we recognize it as ourselves, um, which is a radical theory. It reinterprets a lot of history and everything, but it's fascinating. And it has a lot that is very hard to falsify. And it makes sense of a lot of things that are very hard to explain by other theories as well. So, so imagine, imagine that story is true. And we could tell that story. I have no idea if this is true. I'm just playing with the idea here. Um, we could tell that story of the emergence of consciousness through a mainly physicalist lens. We could make it an epiphenomenal. We say it's one-way causality. Once the geom geometry got right, boom, we got the new uh, output state. Okay. There might also be, we have no idea, there might be uh, ontological states of being which only emerge between the the combination of the physical state and the mental state. So imagine now we have the two-way causality. So your mind has to be in the right state. The physical world has to be in the right state. When both of those informational inputs are put into universal function, pff, out pops a new type of being. Well, that idea- the idealist, it's like the, or like the Jungian idea of the collective subconscious that like, that what is in the cultural zeitgeist, this, yes, this, this exactly right. You can, you can literally manifest it. So I've, I've wondered this, this is getting weird, but I've wondered this. Yeah. So like, like by far more than any time in my life, there's constantly mainstream news stories about uh, UFOs and things like that. Yeah. And I have wondered if um, UFOs exists to the extent that we, we believe they exist. <laughs> like, like we may actually create a category and it may even be retro causal in time yeah. we may yeah. even cause them to have existed in the past at least as as we interpret the past as, in, in the exactly is, is in the present in some ways um so like the, the to the extent to which people point their consciousness towards this concept of ufos and validate them um, right they may actually create the physical experience of seeing more lights in the sky so, so I like this. I, I don't believe that this is the case, but I, I, I'm not I, saying that I know it's the right, case, right. But it, but I, it's right, right. That is entertaining and I love the idea. And 
I, I would call this, th this theory is so flexible. It's like hyper pluralism. So it could be the case that there's only physical and this, uh, well, this is a little bit technical, but even if the world is only um, mental, let's say, you still run into the problem of interaction because you have the question of how do mental states interact with mental states? And that's actually a hard problem that I think you, you sort of need pluralism to explain, but um, you, could, you could imagine a world which is it's just mental. Maybe it's just mental and physical. Maybe we could be dualists in this theory. And my opinion, it's mental, physical, and something else and abstract. So I'm like, oh, there's, I think there's three things, but it's, it leaves open because of this mechanism is so flexible. It leaves open the possibility that maybe there's 150 million different ontological categories that we have no idea or connection to yet because the correct informational input has not been reached. It could be the case. So like if we're getting real, we're getting hyper analysis here. So when we're talking about the physical system, generating the right information to output a, a mental state. Okay. This is a little more complex when you really analyze it. What we're saying is something like it is the state of the individual atoms in relation to one another, which is like a, like a, like a, a, a geometric object can be reduced, I think, to the base units in a particular state. But it's not the base units themselves. It's the base units and their relations to one another. So you can imagine like the bits that compose my brain just spread out over the, the space of this room and it's not going to be the brain. It might be the same bits, but they stand in different relation to one another. Okay, so it's the relation then that potentially generates the output mental state. Well, what if it's the case that the same thing is happening with um, mental states that are in relation to one another? So like, for example, you and me, like this is, we're talking about sort of the, this UFI idea you're talking about. Here's a potential mechanism for it. It's like when the, there are enough mental states, a particular way that stand in a particular relation to one another. That is to say, I believe the UFO and you believe the UFO and all of these other people in these different places believe the UFO. That is now the thing that is necessary to literally generate a new output state. Let's say the construction of the UFO. So you have a sort of, in this, you sort of have a metaphysical mechanical explanation for how it at least could be in theory that belief can generate new states of the physical world. You can take this as far as you want with religion. Like, like in the Bible, you know, when, when enough of my believe, believers gather, you know, I, I manifest when another, enough people pray together or whatever, that's where Jesus is. Okay, well, here's a plausible mechanism I, I could say where that's literally true. You have minds in a particular state in relation to one, one another, just like bits of atoms in a particular state in relation to one another and generates a new output state. I love the I love the symmetry of it that you have these things that are very different, um, physical world and the mental world, but they operate on the same principles. So you don't need different principles for them, but they are not the same thing. Unlike the idealist might say, uh, "Okay, so I started. So I was like accidentally, stupidly correct. I was just using the wrong words. I think I used the word language. I started in asking, are there three things?" And it turns out you are actually a uh, Trinitarian. Uh, I guess I am, yes. the, the Holy Trinity, or no, pluralist. So far, you've only identified three. Uh, sure. There could be more. But, but I was saying, you know, experience, objects, and then language. But really what you're saying is it's mental states, physical states, and information about those states that's being relayed back and forth. Is that a, is yes. that a fair description? 
Sort of. Um, that's part of it. So the chronological explanation is, uh, is probably most illustrative here, which is after sitting in the bathtub and thinking, hmm, I think I solved the mind-body problem. This is interesting. And like just having the eureka moment, talking Julia's ear off and just going, oh my gosh, I found something so amazing. This is such a good theory. I couldn't stop thinking about it forever. Uh, it was after that point I realized, oh shit, I have to revise all of my metaphysics now. Because if this is the way the world works, then unfortunately, dualism is not good enough for me. I think dualism is still a possibility, but uh, here's why I think pluralism is the way to go. Because when, we're when I'm talking about the system, you have the mental states, you have the physical states, you have a third system. This, the, the system, the, the universal function is not a physical thing. It's definitely not a physical thing. It could be a mental thing. I'm open to that possibility. But if it is a mental thing, it's a very different type of mental thing than I have direct experience of. It's like a, a, a function that is out, like what type of thing outputs states of the universe? Like that's pretty powerful, like put it in religious terms or something. And I also have the information aspect. So if there, you have the underlying state of the system, you have information about the system that is then put into the universal function. It has to be, it has to be a separate thing from the underlying system. Like you could, it couldn't be that the physical state itself places itself in a universal function. That doesn't make any sense. You have to have a, you have to have, I think an abstract layer on top of it so that the information can get put into the universal function. Now, what is the nature of abstract things and abstract information? I, I can tell a story in which it's mental. I just think it actually, if I'm being honest it's, it's with myself, it's generous. It's 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 just different than all of these categories. And it's sort of like I feel the same way that I do when talking about the mental world and the physical world. Like if I'm being honest, the physical world seems so different from the mental world. I got to say, okay, I'm just going to say there's a different ontological category. And I feel the same way about information and mental states. There's a sense in which I have experience of information. Like like my mind can be in a state where I have information of something. So there's definitely a component of the abstract world which corresponds to the, the mental world in some way. That's why I'm open to putting it all in mental category. Um, but if I'm just being honest and like drawing up ontological boundaries in convenient places, I'm gonna say, okay, the abstract stuff, that's in its own category. That's the, that's the Platonist world. And in particular, yes. like, like relations are the thing that pushed me over that edge. When I'm talking about the, the state is one thing and then the relation um, of the states among themselves, the relations Gosh, the relations definitely exist, I think. Uh, but I don't think they're mental. Some relations are mental, but I don't think my, I, I think there are mind independent relations in the world. That's the type of thing I'm saying is abstract. Okay, in its yes, own category. Relations of things to one another, uh, physical or mental, um, is just something slightly, yeah. So it's almost like you have, you have mental states, physical states, then you have information which can attach itself to both um, and be a part of both, but it's, yeah. but it's different. It can also travel between them. Yeah. But then you have this, this big godlike thing in your system <laughs> that is taking the, the mental states that maybe are sent to it and then putting them, altering the physical states uh, with those and vice versa. That's playing this sort of, um, it's like a God thing. It's like a God function. It's the yeah, thing it's, it's that like is a, sustaining the universe. Yeah, it's like a function. It's, uh, it's the number 42. It's a system, you know, whatever, <laughs> right. whatever it is. It's, it's that thing at back of it all. 
okay, okay, this is really, really interesting. And I, and I, I just, I also love how, how dense and teeming with life this, this idea is because, and, and again, I'm coming back to the frame rate thing that like you have these physical states and these mental states and they're, you know, you can, you can um, observe them, but the observation is coming at this, at this frame rate. And the, the, there's way more there than what you think you see. And there are ways to see more by yeah. altering your frame rate or whatever, but there are also ways to create more. And so it, it leaves room for both the fact that there's way more to the universe than we could see or observe. People who would say like the paranormal and whatever, it's just stuff, it's just dimensions that we can't access with our senses, but they're yeah. there all the time. And it also leaves room for, we are creating them or we could create them. Yeah. Right? Like, um, which are both really interesting. Like if you ever look into people who debate sort of paranormal experiences or whatever, you usually have the, the, the people who take them seriously and don't dismiss them out of hand. We'll have two camps. One is like, we're accessing some part of reality that we normally can't. And another is like, no, we're creating it um, with our own mind. It's the, again, the collective unconscious. It's a mental phenomena that we created a projection, an egregore or something like that. Yeah. And I think, again, this system works in, in under both conditions and both could be yeah. true at the same time. It's, it's plausibly, <laughs> yeah, it's plausibly alien metaphysics too. Like I like the dimensions is an interesting term here. You can imagine at least there's a bajillion different dimensions and we're just on like one of the bajillion. Well, you could still have the exact same mechanism be an operation in the different dimensions. So just like in this dimension, we have the physical and the mental, it could be the quibbly and the quabbly for the, the aliens in the different dimension, but you could still have effective interaction between the states of the quibbly affecting the states of the quabbly. And it's like, it still works there. The system and the symmetry of the system, like, is enduring uh, even if the, the physical and mental states uh, and the frame rate and all those other things are, are yeah. yeah. Steve, um, this is great, man. You, uh, you solved the nature of reality for me in uh, like under 60 minutes. Hey, thank you. Yeah, great. Happy there, to be on, that'll are, be $5. What are the questions that you are not satisfied with your current answer uh, under this sort of worldview? What are the things that you're like, okay, this is the area where I just can't stop scratching and trying to figure out how to, how to resolve? Well, in metaphysics, um, I'm asking that question all the time because that's how you refine the theory is you try to push it and say, what does this not explain? What does this not explain? And I cannot really find something that I cannot explain within this theory. And I am trying all the time. And if you can think of something, please let me know. The hardest part for a little while was the discreteness of it actually. Well, the, the, the geometric discreteness of it is really hard because you run into math problems. This was um, like, I've sort of been, I feel like I've been on the hunt for, for an idea like this for a long time. And I, it didn't, it, you know, I had the Eureka moment in the bathtub, but it was, was preceded by a lot of thinking and a lot of loose ends that were not tied up. And um, discreteness is, is a real puzzle when you have not investigated mathematics rather deeply because it's so very counterintuitive that you have to essentially explain why continuous mathematics works so well. You have to sort of have a plausible replacement for continuous mathematics when you're talking about discreteness. Um, and that's a really big task. So that was a big ass problem for a while, but Norman Weilberger helped me realize like, Oh, this is, this is not something I have to create ex nihilo. This is already, pretty much been created by somebody who's actually a mathematician doing this stuff. So that was the hardest problem, I would say. 
but yeah, present, I mean, I feel like, you know, as far as metaphysics, free will is an open question, but like the metaphysical structure that I'm describing, I don't yet have a very good challenge to. I imagine one thing that you may run into, and maybe you haven't, is you share this idea with an idealist. A materialist would just disagree with you, right? Because you yeah, yeah. have to accept that, you know, non-material thing that ideas exist or concepts. But if you share this with an idealist, they're going to say, oh, yeah, you're just that's all just subsumed in idealism. You're just an idealist, Steve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've actually heard that. People have said that. Like, I have some idealist followers who are, who are big fans of Castrop in particular. And they say, well, this is there's no reason to be this. the the pluralist like this, you just subsume everything in the, in the, in the mental yeah, category. I don't really consider higher and say yeah. the thing itself is it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm open to that. I just would say, I do not currently have reasons to believe that that's a superior theory to the one in which there are real ontological differences where physical, physical and mental really are different. I think what the, the other really nice thing about this is you, it doesn't have to be that the mental is fundamental here. There's a question of, of what is fundamental. Is the physical? Is it the mental? And I'm saying it doesn't have to be either, actually. It's, it might be hubris that humans are like, oh, you know what is the ultimate grounding of reality? Consciousness. Well, maybe for us, that might be true. Like, what is our essence? Our essence is composed of consciousness. That doesn't mean that's universal. Maybe the universe is way, 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 way bigger than that. And I, 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 that's sort of the, my suspicion. I suppose like if we, if we want to go really hard, like, like open questions that I, I'm sort of satisfied with not having an answer to, um, but they're still open questions is, is really wrapping your head around the nature of abstract things. Like what is an abstract thing? What is the universal function? Mm. And part of me is, you know, that's a good question. I don't know, but, but I sort of don't have the motivation as much to figure that part out because well, I think it's almost like if you could define it, it wouldn't be that thing, right? Then it would just be an idea. There's a sense, yeah. There's <laughs> there's a sense in which that there, there's free card, but it might yeah, be yeah. There, there's a sense in which there's some truth to that idea. That I put it this way: if it's the case, here here's here was sort of my I guess my goal, uh, or maybe the conclusion: is this good enough to let me? to give me a plausible enough belief system to be at least a dualist, which is what all of my intuitions and all of my honest reasoning is pointing towards. Yes, there's mental and yes, there's physical and there's causal interaction between the two. Is this sufficient to say that, you know, the answer to the interaction problem is, is not, uh, people aren't demanding what is the truth? What is the truth of the system in which we inhabit? Oh, that's an awfully hard question. Like, wow. The, the real thing is, okay, get, can you give me at least one plausible mechanism by which objects in different ontological categories interact with each other? The answer, I think, is yes. And so for me, that's sort of sufficient. Well, thank God we, we have one that is plausible. Otherwise, uh, I would just have to conclude that my existence is a lie. <laughs> Naturally, yes. <laughs> this, uh, this is why uh, philosophers and mathematicians... Uh, often lose it. I think that should be the real goal is, can I do philosophy without losing my mind? That is what a theory ought to do for me is keep me sane. It's an interesting question. What if it, isn't this a horrifying thought? What if it's the case that the truth is so terrible and terrifying that the only way you grasp it is by losing your mind? So TK Would you accept I, it? Uh, used to talk, joke about this all the time that he values his 
discovery of knowledge, new ideas, information, truth so much that someday <clears throat> he'll be like crazy homeless guy on a park bench. Yeah. And he'll be like, I, I know the secrets of the universe and it'll actually be correct. And I'll yeah. be like, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I don't need to know them. I'm I'll, be, with my life. I'll be sitting right next to TK. We're doing the same rambles, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I can't escape the fact that understanding how things work and experiencing a life of beauty uh, and uh, joy. I, I, I'm not willing to forego the latter for the former. You're, you're, uh, you're cipher in the matrix, right? Just, I you just want the blue pill. Cause I'm willing to endure a lot of pain and I actually do want to know, I want to know what's behind the veil and I'm, but there's a point at which I will get when I start pursuing anything, TK will start sending me books or articles, whatever. And usually by about the third or fourth website, that's just the most ugly, horribly designed thing that looks like a crazy person wrote it. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, there's some stuff here, but I noticed this thing starting to happen that if I keep going down this road, I'm going to be incapable of seeing anything but connections between and I'm and I'm going to lose it. And I don't have enough confidence in my mental abilities to, to say I'll lose it, but I'll also be more accurate in my understanding of reality. I could I could just as easily be deceived then as now. So I'd rather be deceived while keeping my sanity than be deceived while losing it. So I just yeah. I don't have enough confidence that the trade-off, I know you can lose your sanity. Uh, but I don't know that that I'm not confident that you'll gain a, a more accurate picture of the world. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think uh, I think that the, even the notion of trade-offs is interesting here because if truth is the highest goal, then it's not even a question of trade-offs. It's like, you, it's not, what is the truth costing me? It's like, what is the cost of the truth? And if the cost of truth is, is sanity, but sanity is an, a, a kind of a mushy concept, then it's like everything is worth the cost of truth if that's the highest end. So, so Steve, here's maybe where your, your uh, pluralist worldview brings some, some interesting insight. Maybe it is that the pursuit of truth uh, cannot be relegated to a merely mental phenomenon. So maybe the, there are other abstract components of truth like um, a good life uh, or uh, beauty or, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, moral rightness or something Love. like that, that if you give up everything just to say, I got, I have the most truthful, the closest to truth mental state of anybody, yeah. but I'm a slob. I have a wrecked marriage. My kids hate me. Um, I'm despondent. Uh, I cheat and lie and whatever you're like sacrificing other um, maybe components of truth. Uh, and, and, and again, you can do that on the converse as well. You can ignore yeah. all of the mental components and say, be, be cipher, right? I just want to live a lie and just experience beauty and good tasting steak, uh, which is equally dangerous, but may, maybe it's something like that. It could be, but maybe not. Uh, Cause, so cause that, like every time I see a philosopher who's just like, just like got a shitty life, there's just part of that that feels like wrong to me. And I'm, yeah, not what the if, one, I'm not the type of person that says, oh, if you think you understand the economy, you should be rich or whatever. I right, right, right. Very different things. Right. But there's still something, especially when it comes to philosophy, we're trying to understand like meaning and morality and whatever, like the ethicist who's an asshole, right? Like, I, I don't know. I can't explain what it is, but it doesn't feel right to me. And, and, and when I 
verge on that for myself, I have the strong instinct to check myself. Yeah, I think you have a, you have a particular uh, de facto ethical uh, system, which is saying that I'm not really, like, like I put it this way, you have non-rational convictions that are very deep that the truth affects your life in such a way that you can harm yourself by the pure pursuit of cerebral truth. Mm. And, and, uh, and it's something, it's, it's, it sounds like a picture where you might discover, it's sort of like in the discovery of some cerebral truth, you have lost a larger part of truth, the truth of what actually matters in life. So it's like you got a little bit, but you lost more than you gained. Yeah, there's, there's like a, I, I feel like it's a, um, a constant check to my own belief in what I'm capable of in a way. It's like, hey, there are things that I, that I feel or that I believe that are not irrational, but I can't, they, they don't contradict logic, but I can't rationally explain them, at least not right. yet. And if I were to reject those and only pursue things that I've learned right. how to rationally explain, I would, I would feel like that's dangerous because well, just because well, I don't know how to explain it yet doesn't mean there's something not to it. You know what I mean? And that's very, that's very subtle because it's, it's not, you're not saying, I believe that they are true for, because, I, because the, the extent of my justification for my beliefs is that I feel a particular way. It's that the reason I feel a particular way is likely grounded in things that I don't understand because yes. there's lots of things which I intuit are true that turn out to be true prior to my rational understanding yes. of them being true. I've seen yeah. that pattern too many right. times in my own exactly. life and in society at large Yes, to completely ignore anything that I don't yet know how to define yet. Right. That's wisdom. I think that that sounds like wisdom, though um, I, I, I still think there is some pathology which must stand apart from that and say, it, even if I am destroying everything, uh, I have to, if I honestly believe that I was closer to truth and the truth required that I destroy everything that I previously had strong intuitions about, I have to destroy all of that in the pursuit of truth. It's a, yeah. it's type, it's a kind of pathology. I wouldn't recommend it to people, but some, some people are possessed by it. But there's something right about it too. Like, and, and that's what, that's where that balance, <laughs> the self-knowledge is very difficult. It's, it's a kind of death that I think is, I yes. think, I think comfort with your own death, not physical death, although that's part of it, but with your own reputational death, with the death of your former idea of yourself or the other's yes. idea of yourself. That's like the most necessary and courageous thing um, that I didn't get to do. And it has to happen over and over again. And kind of the, right. the biblical concept of like dying to yourself daily. There's exactly. something profound about that. And, and, and there's also a, it can disguise itself, right? So you can get so caught up in letting your external reputation die and get comfortable with that because you're in the pursuit of truth that you form a new idea that I, I will never get fooled and I only believe things that I can explain right. or whatever. And now that part of you maybe has to die as well, right? Like it's a- Right, right. Well, it, it's something like autism, honestly. Like <laughs> uh, the, the, There is some- I was having a discussion actually with a, a patron once um, and he was a smart guy, autistic, um, was attracted to a lot of the, my work that is more like logical. 
explicitly logical. And um, there's a there's a pattern of reasoning I've seen. I've seen it at myself and I see it at others sometimes, which is it's the fallacy fallacy, which is that if somebody has a belief that they've arrived at via a logical fallacy, it is false. That is not correct. It's if somebody if somebody has made a logical fallacy, it is not the case that it is true by virtue of their argument, but it might be true by happenstance. You can believe all, most likely believe things that are effectively correct for all kinds of shitty ass reasons. Yeah. And thank goodness it's that way. Um, but also I, I, I want to tell you one thing, this is like amazing. So this is harmonious with, uh, with what you're saying. You can imagine the, intensity of the feeling of being overwhelmed when somebody with this pathological obsession with truth comes to a positive belief that love is real and true. So like for me, I'm, I'm of the, the pathological nature. And then I had this experience of realizing that I loved Julia and Julia loved me. And that was actually the truth like i'm open to the idea and was of self-annihilation in the pursuit of truth absolutely and it turns out like totally open wide open like i'll give it all up and then <laughs> to be in that state and just say no no bro the truth is love this is real this is actually a real part of the universe it's it was the most overwhelming realization what can have that to to be open to complete coldness and hatred and self-annihilation and to say the way the world is actually constructed is that you are loved and you love that the way the world is is this way it's it's like it's like the it's like the greatest gift that you that uh, imaginable and and that's that's it. That's what my intuition is, is, is screaming at me all the time. And it's right. That's that, the fucking crazy thing. I, the, I, the universe is constructed in such a way that it is impossible to both find the truth and be a piece of shit at the same time. And, and, yes. but, and it doesn't have to be paradox. that way. But here's the paradox. You have to be willing to, right? It's, yes. like, it's like how you, how you get a girl is you have to not actually need her. And if you yes. don't actually need her to like you, right. she'll start to like you. But you can't fake not needing to like her, right? Right. And once you realize, once you no longer need the girl, you get the girl. Once you're willing to sacrifice all in the pursuit of truth, you get yes. truth. But it turns out it's not possible to have that and be a piece of shit at the same time. I, I actually it, think the universe it, is structured that way. It is structured that way. <laughs> and it's the, it's the most mind-blowing thing because there's a sense in which the heart, the soul has to, be, has to accept a complete coldness in a way that I, I, I can't describe if somebody doesn't understand it personally, like to sac to be will to truly be willing to sacrifice it all for truth and say, nothing matters except for whatever is true is, is, is a complete coldness. It is to say, it is to say, listen, I know you think love is, or life is good. And you think comfort and experience is good. And I am a human living these things, living my life. And I have positive sensory experiences. Yes, I know you think that's good. It is plausibly, truly meaningless, worthless. Like plausibly. There's reason to, in fact, prior to maybe a love experience, you don't have a strong rational reason to believe otherwise. 
So it, it's a state, it's a state of, to, it's a sort of a state of death. It's a, a state of accepting your own meaninglessness and death, if that's what the truth is. And then in that state of complete vulnerability and defeat and, 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 and semi-death, like you're a walking dead person, that's where you, you get the message that, by the way, in this universe, love is real. That, that I, I, you cannot have a more extreme coldness or an extreme love at the same time. And, and I yeah. do think there's some, there's some relation between like the people that can experience religious love, divine love, which is so incredible. You have to have a, you have to have a different metaphysic after the love experience than before the love experience. I think that is reserved to those who have experienced the opposite, which is yes. death to complete death to themselves. I mean, there's, it's, it always used to be baffling to me, and it isn't uh, in, in more recent years, that all of the traditions, rituals, religion, there's, there's this deep, deep strain of um, symbolic death rituals um, of, you know, whether it's you want to become a priest or whatever, some secret society. There's always this death component is like this necessary thing before you sort of have a rebirth um, and come back. And like, I understand that so much more. There's many layers to it, but I, I get that, um, you know, that the need to find, I mean, this is really what growing up is, right? It's that moment when the child who is, lives a charmed life is taken care of. People care about them just right. because they exist. They don't have right. to produce anything, do anything. You have to die. You have to realize, you have to get your heart broken by the world and realize no one will do anything for you just because you exist. Right. It may be special in the eyes of God or in some cosmic sense, but no one in the world, your notion of being someone that matters has to die. And that's like a, almost like a type of trauma that you must process. Right. And it, to yourself. Does, then you can, yeah, then you can live. Right. It's a, it's a weird position to be in to, to think of yourself. There's nothing here. Like I'm not impressed with myself truly not impressed with my, like, that's a weird state to be in when you grow up and you, you, you intuit that, oh, there must be something special. Well, the things must matter. Of course, human life matters. Why goodness, it's shocking that anybody would conceive otherwise. Like none of those things are self-evident. I do want to say one other thing though, about this, um, this, this universal function idea. So this is the other, like, there's a whole religious component to this as well, which is to say, what is your relation to the universal function? <laughs> Like you are an output state of God, uh, of the thing that is sustaining everything. You are a, you are, you, this is like the religious way of talking is a God sustains the universe every minute. Okay. Well, the universal function is the thing that is literally sustaining the entire universe. Like it, were it not operating, the output states would not exist. So, and this is the other thing. This is the other way to understand the love experience. There is a sense in which the output, like, like the love between Julia and myself, and it, it is not just between Julia and myself because it is an output state of the universal function. So to say that you are loved is to say that the universal function is outputting love for you. It's kind of a way of talking about God loves you. How much does God love you? Exactly as much as you are loved because exactly as much as you are loved is the entire universe outputting this state for you. And you did nothing, by the way, to justify this. And you know this internally. When you're not impressed with yourself, 
you're some schmuck. And then it's like, by the way, the entire system is generating this for you with not, not due to your own special specialness. It's powerful, man. Steve, when I first met you years ago, uh, I never expected you to, uh, to talk like a hippie. I mean, come on. <laughs> right. <laughs> me either. It still shocks me as well. <laughs> no, I, I, it, it is incredible. And it's incredible. It's incredible in a way that's different from the way that I used to think the world was incredible in that charmed way. Right. When I was a, a young person and I grew up in the church, I, I never liked the book of Ecclesiastes or understood it, you know, all is meaningless, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Now that I, that I do, that I'm at a place where I actually like love that kind of stuff. Like just the, the acknowledgement of the starkness of, of the coldness, the death, the, the life is also better. The, the love is also better, right? The good it's stuff absurd. is more good, you know? It, it really has to me, it has a, it rings of absurdity. And it did when I first experienced love this way. That it was, I cannot, despite being raised in the evangelical tradition, I was not prepared in any way for the power of that experience. It's like, this, this is so unusual as to be divine, I think is the term for it. Like this, and, and I think you can actually run with this quite far that it's almost, it was almost like, it's almost like love is a, a strong enough and powerful enough reason for the universe to keep going on. It's almost like a, I could imagine that it is the justification for existence. Why is there something and not nothing? Love. And by the way, a constant act of love. The fact that the universe persists over time might literally be a constant act of love. So when the hippies are like, yo, the substrate of the universe is love, man. There's a sense in which like I've sort of been putting together a metaphysics that looks like that's plausibly true. Usually when they say that, it's... Uh... It's followed by, could I like sleep on your couch and get a free sandwich? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, could I like sleep with you now? <laughs> hey man, this is awesome. We're going to wrap it, but you, you leave me hanging with, maybe we should do another conversation in the future about the question of evil. Yeah. Not, not necessarily pain. Uh, that doesn't seem uh, troubling or, or mysterious to me, but evil. Uh, what is it and, and where does it fit in a world that is nothing but love? Um, so we'll have to, we'll have to revisit. The cliffhanger is to say it might not fit. It might, because it might not be that there is such a thing. Oh, the cliffhanger. That is, a cliffhanger. <laughs> is there such a thing as evil? All right, man. Thanks so much, Steve. Always a pleasure, man. See ya.